Inequality matters, but it matters because it basically manifests itself in people having a more stressful, precarious life. And that's, you, that's when you start to see the anger coming out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I am really excited to have on the show this week Dr. Mark Blythe, who's a political economist who teaches at Brown University. He has written and co-authored many books, most recently Angronomics last year, which is exploring the rising tide of anger, sometimes righteous and useful, sometimes destructive and ill-targeted, proposing radical new solutions for an increasingly polarized and confusing world. Mark Blythe is somebody who predicted Brexit and predicted Donald Trump winning the election. He attributed this in part to describing himself as an interloper in academia. And I wonder how many professors at Ivy League institutions have a working class background like Blythe does. He's the son of a butcher who grew up in Dundee, Scotland. And, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because I'm going to have somebody on the show soon who's saying the same thing about journalism, that we focus a lot on race and gender, but we are not focusing enough on class. And I think I was listening to her say, 1937, about 40% of all journalists had a college education. And now it's this elite institution. So I think Blythe is kind of saying the same thing within academia is, is really hard to understand people that you do not live with in your bubble. And um, for that reason, he is such a voice of fresh air in breaking down the world around us. And, and how it's incentivized and um, on the page as a raconteur, as a thinker, he makes you laugh, he makes you think, he is just so compelling and gives you pause in the best possible ways. And um, so he's somebody that I, even going for a run, or will listen to some of his lectures. <laughs> I just find him uh, such a character. So I was desperate to bring him on and thrilled that he uh, was generous enough to do so. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Dr. Mark Blythe on Tourist Information. Okay, I'm back and ready to go. Good, how you, how you doing? Good, what do you want to talk about? Uh, just small stuff, state of America, um, <laughs> you know, where we're headed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to start actually because I was listening to an interview you gave with Open Source, uh, I think back in 2018, that I particularly enjoyed and revisit from time to time because there's just so much dense information. But I thought it was interesting when you were asked your ability to predict Trump, to predict Brexit, largely was a result of you being what you described as an interloper in academia, that you're part of. Uh, the people that you're describing. And yeah. I just thought that's an interesting place to think about in academia because it seems to permeate journalism as well. Yeah. We're all going to the same schools. Totally. Um, every interview I hear with the journalists, they never want to talk about student loans because they didn't have any. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely the class privilege. And basically the upward skew of income and wealth and asset holding is generational. Right. But, you know, Piketty has a great line on this in his book from 2012, where he talks about the new patrimonialism, 
that if you basically compound R over G to such an extent that basically the asset holders make off with 6%, everybody else is on 2%, compound this over 80 years, and you end up with like libelli pock all over again. Right. And your best move is to go to school, not for an education, but to meet the right family. <laughs> right? And, and that's all we know. There's already economics papers on what they like to call, I think it's called endogamous source sorting or something like that. But so, yeah, I mean, you know, people from elite professions now come from pretty elite backgrounds and, and that matters. So if, you know, if you, you see yourself as the interloper in that space, you know, you begin to, to you, you begin to really understand why it is that things that are that class is completely oblivious to drive everyone else bonkers. Right. I've heard that the number one determining factor of your your economic future is the address where you live. Yeah, where, that's, where, that's true. Pretty much zip code is destiny type stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, I, if your zip code's the Hamptons, <laughs> you've hit the jackpot. You know, it's hard to screw up from there. Although people try, they do. Right. Well, how is that the reality? And yet, America is still able to sustain this illusion of upward mobility and. Um, I don't know, this, this belief system that just seems, there's just no way to penetrate it with facts for a lot of people, like this ideology. Yeah, and I'm actually not entirely sure that's still the case. Um, and you know, if you travel around the poor parts of Providence, which is everything apart from the East side, if you go to the Western part of Massachusetts as opposed to Boston, I don't think anybody there is really hanging on to a dream of upward mobility and one day my son or daughter is gonna to go to Harvard. I think those illusions have been basically broken and they do. This is part of the sort of the anger of populism. You know, the, the phrase, it's a rigged game, it's an insider game really rings true. If you were living in a place where by 20 years ago, you had functional schools, functional stores and, you know, and functional families. And now what you've got is an opioid crisis, a Walmart and shit infrastructure. It's very hard to believe that the people in Boston or whatever really have your best interests at heart. So I think, you know, the further down the scale you go, the less that that belief is, is there. And, and the way that we don't see this in a sense is that if you think about sort of, you know, pro-Trump folks, right, they're very patriotic, right? And that would imply believing in the dream, et cetera. But what they also believe is the game is rigged, right? So there's a way in which sort of, you know, it's, hold, it's holding on to part of that ideology, but really reflecting it and refracting it in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was interesting when Obama went to Cuba, and I was covering that as a reporter as well, first time in 80 odd years or so president had been there. Some American journalists, and, and I'm Canadian with a green card in the US, uh, took photographs next to the baseball stadium to say, meanwhile, show, as if it was a horror story, what right. life in Havana was, and it right. was very interesting to see a number of other American journalists take photographs or retrieve photographs from baseball stadiums across the United States to say, meanwhile. Yeah, meanwhile, exactly. Yes, that's exactly it. And again, it's, you know, the reference group. I mean, one of the one of the most interesting and also sort of unnoticed things is, you know, how Americans increasingly live in completely different actual universes rather than just right. conceptual universes. So I've got my nephew with me just now. He's from New Zealand. And New Zealand's still, a, I mean, it's, it's an Anglo country, so it's relatively unequal. They don't do a great deal of redistribution, but land historically has been cheap, whatever, right? It has that type of structure, right? Uh, it's not dreadfully unequal place. It's still a place where you didn't need to go to college to have a house and have a decent life, right? So that was, that was, that was the thing. So I, I said to him, have you heard of Whole Foods? And he's like, no, what's Whole Foods? This is Whole Paycheck. 
And it basically explained the class hierarchy of where you shop, right? So you'd have your sort of whole paycheck at the top for the bourgeoisie, and then you've got your A&P type stores, and then you've got Aldi and Lidl, and below that Dollar General, right? And we literally shop and consume the basics of life in very different universes. Right, and that's new. Like that happened over the past twenty years. That just and it, you know you see it pretty much with everything. The cars that we drive, right? You know the sort of the, the, around my neighborhood, the sort of the the badge of admission is a Volvo SUV, mm. right? And, and it's very a class distinct sort of you know it, the income bracket signals a lot of different cultural capitals and cultural goods. Every liberal I know sends their kids to a private school. <laughs> Every single one. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to raise something with you because I thought it was interesting in a sense, your shared background, at least in the sense of being blue collar, is Ray Dalio, whose parents were jazz musicians, definitely seems like an interloper in the world of finance in many respects, hmm. um, goes on to found the, the biggest hedge fund in the world. And he predicted the 2008 Great Recession. He made money during the 1987 stock market crash. And he recently has made a lot of headlines for saying we're at a 30% chance, according to his research, that we could enter into a, a major civil war type, his words, conflict in the next five years. So I wanted to start with that. And also he's predicting a possibility of a war with China in, in our future. And right. so I thought, is he somebody that you follow to some respect, just that he seems... Uh, at the margins in some in some ways as much as you can be. <laughs> yeah, well, you, when, you, when you've got 42 billion assets under management, you can't really be at the margins of anything or whatever ridiculous number he's got. No, he's an interesting bloke, right? And he's got a powerhouse team of researchers. So, you know, obviously he, he's got stuff behind his bullshit, right? Yep. Um, I actually, I would come to a similar sort of conclusion. I mean, I tell the story this way, right? Imagine I wasn't talking about the United States. Right? I'm just telling you about a country in Europe. And they've just had an election, and the outgoing guy refuses to concede defeat. And they've got really, really partisan media, and they're incredibly divided. And the partisan media is telling the people on that side that really, if things were stolen, and even if they're not actually saying that because you could get them into trouble, it's really kind of pushing the edge of the envelope on that. Then there's a whole sort of culture war that's been invented that's divided them even more, and that's pushing things along. And it looks likely that those folks are going to come back. Now, democracy works on the principle that I get a turn and I get to lose. You don't get to kill me and I get to come back. We've already broken the first one. I don't get to lose. The next one is you don't get to come back, right? So if you think about these 600 changes in laws that have happened to do with voting, things like having one drop box for half a city, uh, you can't give someone a drink of water in a line. I mean, these are purely punitive exclusionary moods, right? You think about the, the current Roe v. Wade thing that's going through the Supreme Court. I mean, I look at this as a trial balloon. If they can do this, that just tells there's a huge amount of information in being able to do it. If they do that and there's no massive pushback, the, the Republicans don't get clobbered by um, women and um, suburban women coming out to defend Roe, which is the liberal version of this, then that's a good information for like how far they can go in any other sphere. So I can completely imagine, not so much a civil war uh, thing, but it's effectively a kind of Putin-esque democracy, whereby the margins are really small. Nobody ever gets 55%. So the struggle is you've both got 49 and you need to get 51. 
So with a combination of media, bullying, a little bit of violence, a lot of moral suasion, and gerrymandering the hell out of things, you can probably lock that in. Then you don't get to lose again. And I can see that as a possible outcome. Huh. Uh, one of the things Dalio said in, in his new book that just came out at the end of November is that the U.S. is hardly the first nation to experience rising debt levels and income inequality while fa facing diminished power and influence on the world stage. But he says the last time those three things happened was in the 1930 to 1945 period. When they happen together, it is always a very telling story. Well, it depends what you mean by telling story. I mean, the, I, again, the problem with telling the story about the future is it hasn't happened yet. And lots of things and lots of possible pathways to those things can sound plausible. And indeed, they are, right? But I push back on another one. Let's think about Ukraine today. What is it that's going to drive the Russians mental? Is it uh, Ukraine joining NATO? Yes, I can imagine why that would really piss them off. But what would really drive them mental is banning them from SWIFT. Because if they don't have dollar clearance, they're in a whole hell of trouble. And that becomes very expensive and very painful very, very quickly. So what does that speak to? It speaks to the fact that the United States' real power isn't its domestic growth rate or the rate of the stock market. It's the ubiquity of the dollar. It's the fact that it is the global currency. And there's so much of it. You know, People don't realize this. More dollars are manufactured outside the United States and interbank loans than are printed by the Fed. Hmm. Right. So this is a true global currency and everything's denominated in it. It's 70 percent of reserves. If you want to get out of the dollar, you have to be a very, very brave Bitcoin advocate because there's literally nothing else that's big enough that you could swap out of in volume without blowing the asset through the roof. Right. There aren't enough Swiss francs. There aren't enough gold bars. And at the end of the day, gold's kind of useless because you need to turn it into currency. So to me, the thing is, it's the structural power of the dollar that keeps you there. Now, this is why China wants to do a digital RMB. This is why um, the, um, pardon me, the, uh, the, the digital greenback proposal is a reply to that. This is why central banks everywhere put their pants over Libra when they came up with it. They were like, what, two, two billion people with their own private currency? No, 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 right? So to me, it's about that kind of just structural strength of the dollar. That's it. If you threaten that, that's when things will go haywire. Hmm. What do you make of the fact that when Bernie was running last time, his entire platform, despite the way that he's painted consistently as radical, had a majority of Americans supporting point by point, and yet he gets nowhere near becoming president? Because the powers that run the Democratic Party at that point in time were simply unwilling to cede that power. Huh. And in a sense, what's happened now is, and there was that article that, I forget the guy who did it a couple of weeks ago, who did that big long piece on the Democrats. Uh, I think it was New York Magazine or something like that. It's worth reading. Uh, but eventually, you know, essentially what you have now is the left has a lot of backers, but they're basically the same kind of wealthy backers. So it's kind of taming the left, right? There's plenty of money to like back the Green New Deal, but not the one that radically redistributes assets. <laughs> right and like you know we can totally defund the police but people like the police so we should have more policing but just different police right and you can see how this is you know this is why the democrats always turn themselves into a circular firing squad over time why is their messaging so terrible like i mean you've referred to identity politics as just straight up red meat to trump voters totally is, is there thrilled to vote against their own self-interest if they get to say fuck you to coastal elites yeah 
Why can't I mean, we find their messaging? But again, it's even it's not even the like voting against your self-interest thing. I mean, I try to resist that one or at least clarify what I mean by that one. Yeah. You know, people's self-interest, you know, one third of all people still smoke. I mean, how can you possibly talk about self-interest if you're doing that to yourself, right? Mm. It's more a question of when people are talking, you know, when Democrats are really, really passionate about racial justice, then what you're signaling to people who are not part of that community is, I don't care about you. And in fact, I think you're part of the problem. Right. And that's what gets the response back from that. They're not able to portray it as a kind of a universalist thing. Look, if we solve the hyper-policing of minorities, if we change what cops do, we'll all end up in a better place. That articulation just isn't made. Right. Well, the other thing I'm trying to understand, like I've been in New York City for 10 years. Our subway was voted the least efficient in the first world. Um, the national debt of the country is 29 trillion. Credit card debt is 800 billion and student loans are 1 trillion. No, they're 1.7 trillion. 1.7 trillion. Th these do not seem like promising metrics of we're the best country in the world, which I hear all well, the time. Well, I mean, let's decompose this, right? I mean. Let's start off with the student debt one. So one thing I'll say for Biden is somebody on his staff did the numbers. If you go through student debt, low, if you're really worried about heavily indebted people, you have to look at one thing. What, how much are they going to earn or how much are they earning relative to the student loan burden, right? And the vast majority of people who are struggling with this are people who have borrowed, or borrowed around ten dollars to $20,000 who are low earners or people who took it to go to college and never finished college, right? And there's millions of people in that bracket. So basically wiping out all of that debt would be easy and cost-effective and not a heavy lift. The majority of the debt in brute financial terms is people who went off to do a professional degree and have $100,000 in debt. And if you went off and did that, then you know there's a question as to what extent that's a voluntary choice. This is not just your first undergraduate degree. If you went off to become a screenwriter and have $200,000 in debt, it's kind of on you, right? So you, know, you can decompose that one. Let's look at the national debt. Who's buying the national debt? Well, the Fed's buying a shit ton of it just now. We're monetizing it and everybody's kind of doing that because of COVID. Prior to that, it was the Japanese for about eight years. Then the Chinese started buying it and now the Europeans are buying it. Why? Because that's who we do trade with. And then when we trade with them, they end up with dollars. They can't use dollars, they have euros. So they have a mismatch of assets and liability in the banking system. So you have to turn the liability, a dollar, into an asset. What's the easiest way to do that? You turn green dollars into treasuries. And then when you buy the treasuries, what do you do? You're basically handing the money back to the Americans that they just paid you for the exports. And that lowers your interest rate, blows out your trade deficit. And at the same time, it doesn't matter because your currency stays high because you've got the global reserve currency. Right. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, right? Um, I once I used to do some talks for the US Navy and I went into a room once with officers and, and civilians and said, ladies and gentlemen, the number one constraint facing the United States ambitions in, the, in the, the world today in terms of the Navy is the state of the national budget. It's a disgrace. The United States is a $20 trillion economy. It's $20 trillion in debt. That is not sustainable. If you could wipe out half the national debt in one go at the stroke of a pen, would you do it? Please put your hands up. And they all put their hands up and I said, congratulations, you've just destroyed the United States. Well, why? Because that's national savings. You literally just wiped out half of national savings. You've just caused a shortage of credit instruments across every market in the world. You've just destroyed the whole mortgage market. Mm -hmm. right? So let's think. So you can start to like change this round, right? Mm -hmm. Our problem is we just don't want to invest in the New York subway. 
Our problem is we just don't really want to do the things that progressives in general want to do. We don't, we, we're quite hard to think about it this way. Um, the F-35 doesn't work, right? It's a hundred million dollars and it doesn't work. You want to buy a couple of squadrons? Yeah, sure, that's like, how much is that then? A hundred million, tens, that's a billion. So let's do like, you know, 10 billion. Let's chuck that. Does anybody have to raise taxes? Is there any pay go on that shit? Navy wants a new carrier, right? You know, half a billion dollars. Yeah, knock yourself out, right? So we don't really seem to have those financial constraints. It's only those financial constraints when it's shit that we might actually want for ourselves. And right. that's when it's like, oh, no, we can't have that. Oh, the debt, the debt, have to look at the debt. I mean, the classic one with the debt, just look at the yield on the debt, right? Interest rates globally have been falling since 1300, with the 70s and 80s being a bit of a weird blip and a trend that basically goes, right? Yeah. Does the Fed even control rates now? It's pretty dubious, set by the global economy. And you've got a huge global pool of capital that by definition you can't crowd out, right? So, yeah. you know, we are where we are. It's because we choose not to do shit. Not going to be fine. Well, let's go back a little bit. At the end of your interview in 2018, you predicted that Hillary was going to run again. Yeah, I got that one wrong. But it was close. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was thinking about it. She really was. Oh, of course. Of course. So I just wonder, could you break down for me how Biden won and I guess where you see Trump headed or, or maybe another version of Trump, a more competent version of Trump in the future <laughs> that might be on the horizon? Sure. I mean, that's what the, I mean, I'm not really an American politics insider. I kind of look at this from the point of view of a political economist. So yeah. why Biden wins, you know, the insider stuff. I mean, was Kamala Harris credible? And that's all noise. I'm not interested in that. Oh, my light just went off. Hold on. Yeah, well, just have to move, you know, one of those efficient things. Sure. Um, so let's talk about the second half of this, right? So here, here's a here's a frame that I use for thinking about American politics going forward. So, and Tom Oatley and I published this in Foreign Policy last year, so you can have a look at this. Uh, essentially, it's the Carbon Coalition, which is Tom's term. So go back to 1971, one in five jobs in America is in the auto industry. If you then basically go to all of the supporting industries from steel to cement, to you know, making spark plugs or whatever, machine tools, right? You're talking about one in three jobs. Right. They're all involved in this. And this creates a big encompassing coalition of capital, capital and labor, whereby along with high growth and high productivity, you have this kind of like growth engine that seems to be unstoppable. Well, it starts to destabilize. Why is this destabilized? Number one, other people get in the game. So what you do locally, you can no longer do because Japan's there and Germany's there to come back, et cetera. The other one's the oil shocks. Once you basically shove massive amounts of um, cost structure through that system, it just destabilizes, right? Just, the oil shocks are massively destabilizing. So what begins to happen in the 80s is you get this residualization of carbon assets across the United States. The blue states start to do something different. Insurance, finance, real estate, on the other coast, movies, you know, what are double down, software, Silicon Valley, right? And the, the middle basically gets hollowed out because of both international competition, also because those firms themselves actively move from those areas, first to right to work states in the south, and then to either Mexico and increasingly out to China, et cetera, et cetera, right? So all those things are going on. Now, when you look at the electoral map now, what you find is if you start in Alaska, Go with the Dakotas, go down through Oklahoma, 
go all the way down, cross over Route 66, get to East Texas, take a left at the East Texas Basin, keep going out to Louisiana, all the way around the bottom, come up and end up West Virginia. That's where all the carbon assets got residualized to. Mm -hmm. Every one of those states has its business model, the extraction, transformation, or otherwise doing something with the derivatives of carbon, whether it's oil, gas, fracking, whatever, right? Now, what is it the blue states want? The blue states want a green transition because we don't want to die and we would like to have electricity, please. That's all we give a shit about. We don't even care about cars. We can have electric cars. That is a mortal threat to the business models of all those states. Yeah. And they have, uh, given what's happened over the past 30 years, if you lived in those states, why would you trust those blue states who have run off with all the cash, had all the benefits of globalization, who tell themselves this great story about how hey, they're the ones that are the good guys and they're the bad guys? Why would you trust them to green transit anything except their self-interest? Hmm. So the line is a carbon line. And my bet as to what happens is the Democrats are doing their current sort of like stalemate, which will turn into a circular firing squad. It'll be really, what's really crucial is what happens in the midterms in 22. If the Supreme Court comes out, does roll, and that causes a counter mobilization that basically keeps their numbers, then they can continue to do more. They're at a better stage for 24. When you get to 24, let's not even get into the age of Biden and how old Trump is and all this sort of stuff, right? But if you don't go through that, if you don't get that boost, they lose their ability to pass legislation in 22. They're dead by 24. At that point in time, along with the sort of the hyped up um, culture war that's gone over race and critical race theory and everything else that's going on with this, the whole sort of wokeness and uh, debate or lack thereof, um, that the way that's been weaponized by the right and constantly put through right media, they're going to win. There's just no doubt they're going to win. And what they're going to do is they're going to be one last giant carbon bin feast, a dumpster fire for ESG. You can forget transition. We're going to be, they already see this. The Southern Attorneys General is basically saying, if you invest in an ESG fund rather than an oil fund, like where you wouldn't get a tax credit and all this sort of stuff, right? So they're going to just double down on that business model. And the tragedy there is that's when America loses leadership. Because it, my favorite quote for this year is, it doesn't matter whether you believe in global warming, what matters is whether your insurance agent believes in global warming. Right. And this is where we're moving to. Right. I mean, basically, large parts of finance are like, this is screwed. The entire insurance agency now looks at coastal property and just goes, forget that. Right. So we'll go on a 10 year binge. Growth will be amazing. Wages will go up a little bit. Billionaires will make even more money. We'll bonfire ESG regulations. And then what will happen is the Europeans and the Chinese will be making all the green tech that we actually need and we won't do it. Mm. And that's when you lose leadership, because if you don't have leadership of the dominant industries that we literally need to survive, you don't have it. You don't have it anymore. Nobody cares. Huh. Well, if we could go back a little bit to, I mean, after Obama, I kind of assume how few scandals there were. Um, I, I, I mean, I did think he was a centrist, despite being labeled a communist endlessly by the right, and he was never far enough left for a lot of liberals, yeah. but there was this whiplash with the next president that I was so kind of gut-punched by, mm -hmm. and yet, so I was curious from your perspective, what do you see as the legacy of Obama in terms of bailing out the banks, um, seemingly getting no political capital whatsoever for killing bin Laden, mm -hmm. which I find kind of fascinating, um, and then just uprooted 
everything that he tried to accomplish with with Trump uh, gleefully. Uh, well, I mean, you know, in fairness, they didn't do everything. I mean, they really tried to get rid of Obamacare. But it turns sure. out, I mean, and, and this is the one thing the Democrats understand really well. Once you build institutions and people have an affection or attachment or are materially dependent on those institutions, it's really hard to get rid of them. Yeah. So once you put an no matter how shitty that healthcare program is in comparison to what it could be, it's still there. Yeah. And if basically, even Trump couldn't take 25 million people's health insurance and go, no, sorry, there had to be an alternative. And the alternative is going to be something that is actually better than that. You couldn't make it worse and get away with it, right? So, you know, those legacies are there. In terms of, you know, bailing out the banks, yeah, but, you know, everybody bailed out the banks and everybody bailed out the banks because we gave every all the powers policymaking to central banks and central banks are still making policy, regardless of what we think. Um, so, you know, that's where we trans we delegated power out to the technocrats and the technocrats are doing what technocrats do. So I'm, I'm less down on Obama in terms of the sort of, you know, the hope and change agenda being a, a failure in that he was handed a very large shit sandwich the minute he got there. And like most Democrats, they always assume that this time it's different for bipartisanship, and it never is. Ever. It never is. They have no interest in doing this whatsoever, right? But they keep trying, right? Um, and, you know, and, and ultimately it kind of like it grinds to a halt because there's only so many sort of like, you know, nudge technocratic fixes you can do that will actually have the type of achievements and, and force behind them that you really want. You know, and then there's, and there's also something that became really annoying about that type of policy making, which is, and, and Nassim Taleb has, has always said this, and I completely agree with him on this, is that it, it ignites my inner libertarian if such a thing exists, and it's very small if it does. But it's this idea that sort of, you know, these clever people who went to Harvard and Brown and places like that, they know what's best for you. Let's take, for example, pensions. We won't actually talk to you now about whether you should have a pension or not. We will trick you into signing up for a pension because we think that's good for you. So right. you actually have to uncheck the box rather than check the box. Aren't we so clever? More people have pensions. It's like, okay, but what about the real wage that they get paid? Maybe the reason that that woman doesn't want a pension just now is because she values her children's future more than her own. And given her wages, she doesn't want a pension. She'd rather spend it on her kids. And you are deciding that that's the wrong choice for her. And I think this kind of like micro example after micro example of this that has been layered on to what Democrats became. They stopped being a party of big ideas, which Biden, to his credit, has tried to re-establish, but is totally unable to communicate what they are. And it became the party of technocratic nudges and sort of like experts doing stuff. And people, to quote the, the great line from Brexit, people have had enough of experts. Huh. Well, and, and you speak about that on a micro level. I remember uh, an ex of mine had a grandmother come to visit in Vancouver while we were living there. And she mentioned getting out of a, an abusive relationship in the early 1970s with three kids and moved to Seattle. And she packed meat at a Safeway supermarket. And from that position, a very compromised, risky position, she was able to put all three of her kids through college she was part of a union, so she was making, I think, $20 or so an mm -hmm. hour there. She was able to retire comfortably. She was able to buy a home. She was able to have a car, and all of her kids did pretty well. And what I find interesting when I have debates with more conservatives is, aren't you in support of a woman like that who worked her ass off in order to provide for her kids, and there was enough support that, that she had a, a hope in hell 
of making it. Whereas if you put that same woman in Seattle today, she can't afford a house. There's no no way to send her kids to college. If anybody gets sick, they're fucked. (laughs) She has no union, so there's no healthcare coverage and she can only work part-time at Safeway because they don't want to pay full-time. I just don't understand how there's not more support in kind of creating scaffolding to help somebody in this kind of position. I mean, I know it's an arbitrary example. No, I think it's a very good example, because if you think about it, you think about the bills that are lying around Congress, right? So there's HR 225, which is essentially the let's get more people into unions type bill, right? Yeah. Partner from a pretty low level, uh, like 6.8% of American workers in the private sector are at all unionized. So if you double the number, you get to 13%. I mean, it's not exactly a giant move. That's how far things have residualized. Yeah. But that's that's one attempt to do so. But it's not exactly central to like what's going on in that sense. It's like, let's build infrastructure and let's do this and let's do that. And, and you know, and we look at the green plan, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, unproven technologies like carbon capture and storage, which obviously we will subsidize in the private sector will reap the benefits, right? So the Democrats are in a sense, you know, deeply compromised themselves in terms of what do they do for ordinary people, which is why they don't really have a lot of faith in them anymore. On the other side, the Republicans, I think, are actually very interesting in this moment, because there's no doubt that Trump is the kind of like, if it's not nailed down, steal it, pet, you know, kleptocratic elite tax cuts for me and my mates type of thing. But if you think about what made Trump possible, one of the things that was fascinating was the absolute failure of Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, right? right? Because the standard like, we're there to give corporations whatever they want, doesn't work because A, the Democrats kind of adopted that as their business model as well. So that was a crowded field. And secondly, the people that, who are gonna vote for you who are not sitting on a giant 401k or are not gonna benefit from these policies, eventually kind of go, what, what, you know, what's going on here? So if you look at people like Josh Hawley, who are much more kind of like, let's weaponize populism. Let's in a sense, reinvent ourselves as a kind of heron white welfare state for the white working class, right? That's the sort of a hardcore version of that. That's where the drive and the energy is in the party. And in a way it is a recognition of that fact. Now, is that deeply exclusionary? Does it push out minorities? Is it at all progressive? No, absolutely not. It's horrible in many ways, right? But it is actually kind of better than the than the Democrats' response, which is, we'll have a giant Green New Deal. Trust us, it'll all be fine without really filling out how you're going to do this. I mean, it's not that difficult. You can go to places, you know, in, in Europe, you can go pick a country. They've done loads of this stuff, like building retro refits, reskilling people, all that sort of stuff. We're just on the drawing board and slogan stage and never seem to get past it. Right. You want to change you want to change Joe Manchin? What you do is you put a bill out through Congress, you do it by any means necessary, and you basically say, we're going to retrofit every building in this state, and we're going to train people as HVAC, Sparkies, electricians, the whole lot. We're going to do a huge job doing that. We're going to bring out 30% reduction in all the carbon emissions from the state because that's what comes out of buildings. And then we're going to take those people and we're going to basically use them to train other people. And we're going to do this state by state through the red states. That would change people's minds. Right. Right. But we don't think like that. We're like, let's do CCTS and we can repurpose the gas infrastructure because we don't want to piss off, uh, piss off a, a large oil major. Hmm. Do you do you see in any way, I wonder often, I was watching a documentary on Elliot Spitzer's rise and fall, Democrats just do not seem to produce the kind of bulldogs that the right does. And I'm thinking of uh, Alan Grayson, seemed like he was auditioning for that role a while back from, from Florida, but Spitzer certainly 
terrorized Wall Street. And you had bankers, elite bankers saying, you know, yes, what we're doing is corrupt, but it's not as corrupt as this bank over here. Let us pay you <laughs> off and that kind of thing. Right. Do you think Elliot Spitzer, if he got, if he became the first Jewish president in the United States or an Alan Grayson, would things get done? Like, I mean, are, are, is that at all viable? That's a legitimate question. I, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, but let's think this through, right? What's the structural advantage that Republicans have that they can have bulldogs? They know exactly who their constituency is and they look just like them. Mm-hmm. And they have a shared set of values and a shared sort of frame on how the world works. Democrats really don't have that. They pretend they have that, but you've got everything from defund the police all the way through to we should be nice to Silicon Valley. Not a lot of points of contact, right? So the, in order to be a bulldog, you need to have the, the pack behind you, right? If you don't have a pack, if you have like a squabbling mass, it's just really hard to be the bulldog. Right. Because you're just going to piss off your own people. Um, can you lay out for me, I know you, you're asked to do it all the time, but your explanation about 1945 to 1975 and why the baby boomers are, in your term, awful. Um, <laughs> could I hear it once more and just, I guess, any kind of insight into how it's evolved over time? So, I mean, the, not to do a book plug, but really the third chapter of Angrynomics does this. Yeah. We talk about capitalism as kind of three forms of computers, right? 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. 1.0 is the gold standard. The hardware is basically integrated markets backed by gold, financial flows, people flows, capital flows, the whole lot. And this creates a problem. The problem is deflation, prices going down because you've got too many exporters. When that happens, wages go down, workers get pissed off. And then when the system crashes, you get fascism. Simple. When you come out of that, you want to go, let's not do that again, because that was really bad. So you create much more insulated types of economies, by which I mean very restricted capital flows. You're not allowed to just move your money abroad. You invest at home. You've got high taxes, high transfers, big labor, lots of lots of legal restrictions on what you do. And you build that kind of hothouse carbon economy that I was talking about in the 70s. And all of that starts to come apart in the 1980s and leads to the world that we've got now, the kind of 3.0, which was the neoliberal world, which actually crashed and burned in 2008, but we didn't admit that because we let the central banks basically take up all of the, ba- take up all of the bad assets and essentially add liquidity to the system so we kind of resuscitate Frankenstein without really addressing any of the fundamental flaws in it. Um, that's the short version. Where do you want me to go with it? Well, just just in the sense of where, let me just get the numbers here. Baby boomers controlling 80% of all financial assets. That's a good one. That's the US figures. Um, and some people have disputed that. I, I went back and checked the source for that. For um, economics. I'm quite happy with that. I mean, part of this is something they'll point out, simply life cycle effects, right? Which yeah. is, you know, when you're 20, you don't have anything. If you wait another 40 years, you'll have more. If you wait 60 years, you'll have even more, particularly if you don't spend it. But I think that kind of misses the point that during the 1980s and 1990s, what we did is we de- deregulated the banking system and we turned everything into assets. And those assets have been increasing in value. So whether it's the value of stocks, right? Think about going from at the nadir of 2008, it was 6,500 on the Dow. Now it's 33, right? Think about houses, how much expenses houses have gone, particularly in coastal properties, right? Um, so all of those assets have gone up in value. And what boomers in particular have been able to do is they've been at exactly the right point in the life cycle to buy this stuff 
and just watch it go up and up and up. And they're the ones of us, which here's an interesting little figure. It's an incredible one. Uh, only 22% or 23% of 401ks actually have any cash in them. Staggering. Right. You know, because you go to a job and it's like, hey, you got a 401k. It's like, yeah, but you pay me like shit. So what does that matter? Well, we'll put in a matching contribution if you do. I can't even afford the matching contribution. Like, what, why would I bother with this, right? So it's got incredible asset concentration, which also goes along with a certain demographic. Now, this goes back to where we start, right? Follow this through. Where does it end up? It ends up with Paquette's neo-patrimonialism, right? At the end of it, the boomers got a house in Florida, a house in Providence, and $2 million in other assets and across a couple of 401ks. They probably have one kid. That one kid has been waiting on these folks dying forever. Eventually, they will. They'll inherit all those assets when they're 40, possibly even 50 years old. And then they don't spend them. So what happens is, you know, you just pass that inequality on to the next generation. It's not as if it goes away when the boomers slip the stage. You just pass it to the Gen Xers that basically will inherit from them. Right. Well, there's an interesting symmetry I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I think Slava Zizek brought it up in terms of when Cuba was in economic free fall, every American gleefully said, well, it's, it's, it's communism, of course, this is what happens. But Castro's resolve was if we had the right communists, if we were more communists, we could make it work. But, he, but Zizek pointed out in 2008 with the Great Recession, essentially capitalists made the same argument. If the right people were in Wall Street, <laughs> we could make it work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is that there's no mystery as to what happened, right? I mean, it's a class, you know, everybody rediscovered this guy, Hyman Minsky, who wrote a very smart but totally unreadable book about stabilizing unstable economies. But, you know, modern economics kind of forgot about banking. Like, you understand why in a general equilibrium framework, right? Basically, money's a pass through, right? You borrow, I lend, doesn't change anything. You have this doctrine that's the idea of the long run neutrality of money that, you know, in the short term, you spend a lot of money you can get a, an increase in prices and possibly output in the long run, it dissipates because money is not really real, right? What matters is like real output, right? All of which are reasonable propositions. But it turns out that when you run a giant investment bank and you have like $2 in assets and $98 in loans and 10% of your assets go bad, you're done. Right. And that done connects to all the other people who are doing the same thing and the entire system collapses because leverage matters. On the way up, leverage is brilliant, right? I only had a hundred bucks, but I made a thousand worth of bets. I made $2,000, I'm a genius, right? On the way down, I've only got a hundred dollars and I've got 500 in the losses, help, right? So I mean, it's, just, it's an old story. There was nothing special about it. So no, having different type of, I mean, it's just in both the Cuban example and the Wall Street example, it's totally self-serving bullshit. Right. <laughs> well, it, but I, it, it's interesting to me how people buy into it. Um, I was teasing, teasing my girlfriend's parents about us moving to Spain, and they said, well, what about healthcare? As if the healthcare... They like, yeah, they have that. <laughs> well, and, and not only do they have it, but when you look at the overall rankings, right. Portugal is number one. Yeah. Spain is number two, and the U.S. is hovering around 20. Now, right. I understand it's totally different if you have money, but it is an interesting commentary that there's the assumption that this oh. system must be better. Absolutely. And again, I mean, this is where the sort of like, you know, the, to go back to earlier, what we were talking about, you know, the American dream beliefs, you know, can continue in this regard, right? Because not only is there a lack of comparative evidence or comparative experience, right? I mean, I think it's still the case that most Americans don't have a passport or at least haven't traveled on it, right, abroad. 
Right. So, you know, that's going to obviously limit. It's very different if you live in like Portugal or, you know, you, next door is Spain. You can walk there depending on where you live, right? So you have that type of comparative experience. The other one is the way that, you know, the media portray this stuff. I mean, if you watch any television at all, or, you know, Hopkins 24-7 or whatever it is, right? I mean, it's just this constantly, or any of the medical dramas, right? You know, Grey's Anatomy or whatever, right? It's just, um, like, let alone House, right? It's this amazing system with the world's most incredible freaking doctors. And then, you know, we don't have delays. We don't have queues. We don't have anything that the Brits have got, whatever. I phone up my daughter in Boston. I'm like, hi, can I get an appointment? I'm like, yeah, what's going on? Well, my arm hurts. I think I've had a stroke. My eye's falling out. We can see you in about 10 weeks, you know? And the actual lived reality of this system is garbage, right? But for some reason, we all have this kind of Hollywood version of what it's like, and, and, and that persists. It is very interesting. I don't know why, but it does. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to get your sense of how viable it's going to be. I know at Davos, I think a year ago, maybe two years ago, you had a, a, a Netherlands economist go in and say, why is nobody talking about taxation? Actually, yeah, no, he's a historian. Yeah, historian, I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, you know, he actually said, this is like going to a fire brigade conference and nobody wants to talk about war. <laughs> right, right. Well, so I thought, you know, going back to FDR, FDR signed his 90% tax rate on the highest earners, grinning and name-checked William Randolph Hearst saying, this is for Hearst. Right. How did we go from that to... The job creator. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I want to get your sense, A, of... How is taxation going to fluctuate in terms of a politically viable solution to a lot of yeah. these problems with income inequality? And then do you foresee a wealth tax or a net worth tax on the horizon? So here's an interesting way of thinking about it. Why is it that in America in particular, MMT, modern monetary theories, become such a thing? Well, partly because if you are the global reserve currency, it is kind of true. We can print as many dollars as we want and people seem to want to hold them. Uh, there seems to be an insatiable desire to hold our debt, which means you don't really need to raise money through the debt. So you can just spend the money like we do with the defense budget. You know, deficits don't matter. Literally look at the size of the deficit, look at the interest rate on the debt that's generated by it. You know, it's right. So bravo, they're absolutely right. Great, this is good on that sort of stuff, right? Does it apply to other economies in the world? I'm a bit more skeptical, right? But nonetheless, that story's there. But the politics of this are fascinating because what it says is, forget about taxes. It's a nightmare, right? We, we don't have to go there. We can just get the power of the state and we can spend on what we want. So what you're doing is you're bypassing the whole thing. Right. In a sense, it's an evacuation of politics because the politics are really hard. We've inculcated this belief, which is probably true, that raising taxes is toxic. And the way that that can get portrayed, even if it's like completely a plutocracy that is benefiting from this, is that we're all suffering under this terrible burden of taxes. And I think one of the reasons that this works in the United States is that the weird thing about the United States is it's absolutely true that people earn a lot of money at the top, right? Sure. But they spend a shitload as well, right? So I get paid twice as much as my equivalent professor in Britain, right? But I spend, I don't know, two grand a month on healthcare, right? right? right. Chuck in on average two grand a month for people who spend their kids, send their kids to private school, no, three grand a month, right? So right out of that, there's five grand of pre-tax earnings that's got to go on this year, right? So you need to earn a ton of stuff to do this. Consequently, people, particularly once you start to move up the curve, are incredibly sensitive to changes in their tax rates. Mm -hmm. And that is why it becomes political dynamite. 
right? The, the, the econ 101 argument is what's the marginal value of a, a dollar to a million or zero? Really? Then why do they fight so hard over taxes on just one dollar? In fact, why is it the higher up you go, the more resistance there is? Now, of course, it's ridiculous when you get to the point of billionaires and all that sort of stuff, because they don't even have income, right? They have assets that they pledge against loans. They live off the loan income, and the loan income isn't taxable. And yet they spend their money blocking tax reform. Right. So, you know, this is, this is, you know, both a real felt thing for like, you know, the upper middle classes, which is then weaponized by the plutocracy to make sure that their assets never get touched because that's the wealth tax alternative. So, you know, all of this is like enmeshed in a really, really interesting and very perverse way in the States. I just wonder, I mean, income inequality in the U.S. right now is more severe than it was in France before the revolution. And, and I gather it's the same thing. <laughs> Is it just that we have, I don't know, better iPhone games distracting us from this that is keeping this from its natural destination? Or, or how do you see well, it? No, but the, the, the problem with poverty in the United States is ill health and obesity. It's, it's not starving. So that one's taken off the table right away. And yes, arguments about food deserts and nutrition and malnutrition, all of that is there, right? But the fact is, you're not starving, right? This is an astonishingly rich country. And even at the bottom, the, resi the residue, you know, that's there is, is more than French peasants, I'd put it that way. So it's a bit of a weird thing. Yeah. The other one, though, is and there's a really great book, and you should talk to her. Albena Asmanova has a wonderful book about precarity. And her point is the following. People really don't care about inequality for two reasons. Number one is a kind of a peer group thing, right? If you live in a neighborhood where everybody's the same, you can kind of know that Sarah Jessica Parker, sorry, I'm just picking that name at random, lives a very different life from you, but it doesn't really matter. And, you know, if Ray Dalio has a gajillion dollars, that's fine, but you don't know what a hedge fund is, right? And, and that's everybody's life experience. Why should they, right? So there's a way in which, you know, you naturalize your peer group. And I remember there was a study done, I think it was Maury, it was one of the polling agencies. Uh, I think it was David Brooks did a piece on this years ago. Uh, back in the times. And basically, they phoned up something like three and a half thousand Americans and said, where would you place yourself in the income distribution? Top 1%, 10%, 15%, whatever. And they didn't give any dollar numbers. 19% of Americans said they were in the top 1% and another 10% thought that they would be in the top 1% in their lifetime. That's so you can, you can achieve this one. You can think about this one of two ways. Number one, that people are dumb which isn't really helpful, or they basically naturalize to their peer group. And they think, well, in terms of where I live, I'm pretty well off. I must be in the top 10%, which is a pretty natural way to do it, right? The other one is what they care about is precariousness rather than inequality. You can run really high levels of inequality if everybody's growing on a relative basis. I'll give you an example. One of the most unequal societies in the world has always been South Korea. South Korea ran eye-watering levels of inequality through the 60s, but it didn't matter because they were growing at 13% a year. Wow. Right? So when you've got that level of growth, you don't really notice that much, which is why capitalism has always been imbricated with a kind of legitimacy narrative of growth, right? Rising all rising tides and all that sort of stuff, right? So what we've got now is a world in which not only has growth gone down, so these things are more apparent, we've taken away the, the buffers. We've taken away the things like unions, public pensions, um, good funding and functional public schools, employment contracts. I mean, my God, the whole country is on hire and fire at will, right? 
You've got firms that shirk their responsibilities all the time with uh, healthcare. No wonder, because it adds 30% to everybody's paycheck and they got to pay this stuff, right? You've got an explosion in part-time work, gig work, contract. All of the costs, all of the risk are being put on to people, but the mechanisms to protect themselves from that risk are not being complemented. They're being taken away at the same time. So what people care about isn't inequality itself. It's inequality that becomes uh, obvious through a precariousness in their everyday lived experience. And that's what really gets people excited. And I gotta say, I think that uh, Alben is absolutely right on that. I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it. Inequality matters, but it matters because it basically manifests itself in people having a more stressful, precarious life. And that's, you, that's when you start to see the anger coming out. I guess last question, I know you gotta go. Um, what do you make of the fact that children in America today are showing record-breaking signs of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation? Even even the wealthy ones. I, mean, I know. I know. Shootings. I know. I mean, I want to say, you know, climate change. You know, basically, if if you're ten years old, you've already learned that we're in deep trouble. You don't really know why, but you know that we can't fix it, and it's all really serious. And we're all going to die. That's not a great thing to grow up with. But at the same token, my generation grew up with. You know, I lived. I lived atop a giant nuclear weapons dump called Scotland. At the height of the Cold War, and like you know, literally in 1981-92, we're like, well, could be the last night, right? So you know, we, we we've lived with different forms of existential threat before, and we haven't you know manifested it in this way. I don't know. I think it's it is very serious, and I do take it very seriously. Um, I don't really have any good answers, but you know, basically, what it shows is one thing. Regardless of you know whatever one thinks or whatever one's politics are. If you live in a world whereby those figures are real, we're not doing well, mm. right? We're just not doing well. I'll leave you with one thought and then I'll have to run. Sure. At the end of every year, uh, Harvard surveys its outgoing undergraduates. And these are the very top of the tree, right? It's the Harvard graduates are going to go off and have fabulous lives, right? 20% of them said that they didn't have sex when they were in college. This is the 2018 figures, if I remember correctly, right? I'm not probably exactly right, but I'm definitely bloody close, right? 20% yeah. didn't have sex, but 40% said they were sexually harassed. And another 40% said they regularly sought mental health care. That's not a happy bunch of people. And that's the very top of the tree. Mm. I want to think about it. Yeah, I'm going to turn it over. Mark, I really appreciate your time. I'm glad we finally got to do this. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the chat. When it's up, uh, send me a, a URL and I'll tweet it out. I would really appreciate it. I, uh, yeah, thank you. All right, talk to you soon. Okay, have a great day. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon-Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.